All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this morning, uh, to be able to fellowship as family in your son's good name, Father. Thank you so much for the ability to do it, the good health uh, that you give us, to be able to gather this way together in a, a building that you set forth from eternity past to do this very thing. Father, thank you for peace that surpasses all human comprehension. Thank you for giving it to us in time, Father, and thank you for reminding us that life truly is good, not because of circumstances either, but because you say so. What a wonderful reminder this has been. We're so grateful for these messages. We do pray for those in the congregation that are ill, Father, um, that you heal them. And if healing's not in the books, then, Father, just comfort them, as we know only you can. Uh, and also, we pray that they know that we're with them in spirit. Um, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope, that they be humbled before it's too late. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to make all of this a reality for each one of us as well as corporately. We, just do, we do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Life is good because God says so. I love this so much. Um, before we dig in, I do want to uh, give you a couple of, uh, read a couple of emails I received this past week. Um, one was from down in, is Joshua in Kenya? All right, so it's from Kenya. Uh, one of my favorite people on the planet that I've never met. I, got, I, I love this guy. Uh, anyways, regarding our messages that have been titled, Life is Good Because God Says So, here's an email from our friend Joshua. Thanks, sir. Uh, would you imagine how life would have been without challenges? We would not have been able to make decisions. A man went to climb a mountain. He went it all alone. After climbing the whole day, darkness started stealing in slowly. After one and a half hours, visibility had become next to nil. This young man started asking himself why he had ventured into this. After walking for about 30 yards, he stumbled and started falling down. Dizziness grabbed him. He didn't know how far he had come down. In between, he was caught by creeping plants. When he had come to himself, he heard a voice telling him, let go of the creeping plants and you will land safely. This voice repeated many times, but the young man tightened his grip on the creeping plants. He was in that position until early, until early hours of the following day. It is when he realized that he was suspended just one and a half meters above the ground. Then he left holding on to the creeping plants and his feet touched the ground. He breathed a sigh of relief. When you say life is good, there are those who are looking at their current situation and say that it is impossible. But God who made the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 to, re to resurrect is still in control. When we see that life is difficult, God will cause us to, or 
cause to drop a blessing right where we are, morning and evening, but we must first let go of our understanding and trust that He, God, has made everything to our advantage. Why? Because He has said that we should always thank Him everything, for that is His will for us. If He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, then He will sustain us in the faith until we go to be with Him face to face. God bless you, brother, so, so very much. Your brother, Joshua Mokua. How awesome. He's just, he's just a magnificent uh, person, really. Um, and he has a very difficult life. He lives a very hard life. Um, the next uh, email I got was from a congregant uh, on this week's blog, which was titled, Compromise Isn't Compassion. Compromise isn't compassion. It's funny. This is, the, this is the email. It's funny if you think about how our flesh works. It wants to be heard by others and never wants God's truth to shine light on its fleshliness. So often as Christians, we claim someone is being compassionate when they, when they make allowances for our fleshly desires. Thank you for the reminder that we must never look at a situation with the world's lens, even if it means responding to someone's flesh, in such a way as to call out what the person is doing as sin by giving them what the holy God of the universe says on the subject. We are to put, our, put on our armor and stand firm to what God's word says is true. We must take the narrow road that leads to life. And that's from a congregant here. I'm not going to leave them nameless because I don't want them to get all puffed up. <laughs> if you knew who it was, you'd probably be like. I do hope you, does, do you agree when I, you, you uh, encourage when I read those? They're awesome, right? They're just so amazing. Don't be, don't be afraid to send them yourself. If you, if you like hearing them, just remember how much, how encouraging it is for you to hear that. Right? So, um, some of you are like, yeah, only if you mention me by name, though. It's the only way it's going to happen. I need my glory. If I'm going to write, if I'm going to go through all that, write a couple of paragraphs. I want some glory. <sighs> Anyways, uh, I do hope you're all encouraged by those uh, emails. Um, changing gears, though, I'm not sure about you, but I am really loving this side. But remember, we're still on uh, The Lord is Our Confidence. That's still our mainstream. I think we're on part, I don't know, 60, 70 something. Um, we're on part three of life is good because God says so. I hope you're really loving it the way I am. Uh, here's how this all started up here on the board. Life is good. Uh, this is not conjecture. It is a fact. Uh, it, uh, it's, I can't say that enough. There's, there are facts in the Bible. Don't you don't have to, I've been thinking about this a lot, you don't have to spiritualize everything. There are spir spiritual truths that transcend uh, things we can even articulate in human language. But you know what? Think of the resurrection. That's a historical fact. Do you understand? And our, our entire faith is based on that thing. Right? And so there are a lot of facts that we can rest on. They're not spiritual facts where someone can even tangle with you. They're facts. And this is one of them. Life is good. 
That is a fact because God says so. And we should lean on that as a fact, not as a conjecture, not as a feeling even, or some emotion that gets drummed up because we're reminded of the sun coming out. Are those good reminders? Yeah. But that's just a reminder of something that pre-existed humanity even. That's the fact. And you have to think of life as good that way, that it's a fact. doesn't matter what your emotional state is, it's a fact. And the sooner you get to, to realize that, the better off you are. So the reference passages um, on the board really just walked us through the baseline theology, uh, starting with simple facts. Here it is up here on the board. Since God is good and God is eternal life, then the life that God has is good. This is the same life we are given at salvation. It's called eternal life. And wow, it's good. We're given eternal life at salvation. That is God's life. It's, I'm going to give this thing to you. I'm going to give you eternal life. And eternal life has always been with me. Therefore, it's always been good. I'm going to give that Good gift, think of James 1.17, every good gift, right? I'm going to give that gift, I'm going to bestow it on you. And for us to even consider saying that the life we're given isn't good, what would, what would, what's the accusation back to God? You gave me a, you gave me a less than good life? This, this thing you call eternal life, you gave it to me and it's, it's not that good? Okay, I'll, I'll concede, it's pretty good, but it's not... I'm not going to say it's that good. Who are we to say that? We don't even have the biblical right. We have to say it's good. We have to say it because it's a fact. So go to John 6.40. John 6.40. We have a multitude of, of, of uh, passages in the Bible that become our proof of this gift being given. We have so much proof in the Bible that really just says, you know what, this is a fact. John 6.40 For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But you see, that's your promise. You're given eternal life. It's a perfect gift from above, which means it's perfectly good. So the fact is that life is good. Now, as we know, this incredible gift doesn't come to us even in a vacuum. Some of you might say, oh, that's fantastic. But it doesn't just come in a vacuum. That's not the only gift we get, in other words. For example, there are so many other blessings in store for us. Go to 2 Timothy 2.21. 2 Timothy 2.21. There are so many blessings that we're given. 2 Timothy 2, verse 21. 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, okay, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Well, that's something else. That's not just eternal life, is it? 
Now you get to become a vessel for honorable use, being set apart as holy, which means you now have a godly purpose. That's beyond just eternal life. Now you have real purpose. Useful to the master. How, how, how amazing is that? Just to know that you're useful to the one who redeemed you. That you can function that way in, a, in an attitude of gratitude. That you can function and say, I love you so much. I just want to do whatever's pleasing to you. You lay down your life for me. That's the very best anybody can do. It's the greatest show of love. And you did that for me. And you would have done it for me if I was the only one that was required. That it was required for. You would have done it for me personally. Thank you for giving me a life where I can express my gratitude in return. That's another incredible blessing. Ready for every good work. For real? For real? We can do good works? Stupendous. It's unbelievable. Whenever we see the phrase good work applied to we believers in Christ, we must immediately think about something else. Something that has percolated up in every one of our lessons for years now. Every time something comes up, obedience obedience. That obedience is a privilege granted to us by God. Here's a friendly reminder on that topic. Life is good because we have the grace gift of obedience. How about that? How about you have the ability to obey? How about that as a privilege? Some people be like, I don't know if that's a privilege. I'm thinking, I'm feeling a little adolescent right now. I'm feeling a little oppressed. Mm -mm. Once you get the Word of God right in your soul, you realize that this is one of the things that you want to cling to the most. I just want to obey. <laughs> My life is at its best when I'm most obedient. Anyone in here want to agree? Right? Some of you look like, how does he know this stuff? Right? You live it. Because when you're disobedient, your life goes to pot. I could probably parade of every one of you up here if you were totally honest. And everyone could stand right here and say, it's totally true. Let me give you an example of just this last week. Life is good because we have the grace gift of obedience. As such, we ought to thank Him every day. Here's a summary principle from Thursday's message up here on the board. <clears throat> Obedience is a grace gift. By grace, God has given us commandments and the spiritual energy to obey them. Obedience is a blessing meant to sanctify us. The more we understand this, the more we rejoice, pray, and give thanks, Allah, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, that life is good. We just abide in it. Life is good. Why? It's a fact. Because it's a fact. What an incredible blessing to be able to live in this ridiculous world that Satan has been given control over. 
a la 2 Corinthians 4.4. And on that note, total side note, I just have to share a little tidbit. I never realized before. I actually never looked up, or I never saw this word this way. Go to 2 Corinthians 4.4. I just want to show something to you. We know that Satan is called the god of this world, right? That's, the, that's the, like the NASB uh, translation. I think it might even be in the ESV. But I want to give you a little color. It might help because it helped uh, me personally in my studies. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Just a little side note that came up on the topic that Satan has been given control. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In, the, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Well, here's the words, aeon. That word for world is aeon, and it actually means an age. It actually means an age, uh, a cycle of time, especially of the present age as contrasted with the future age, and of one of a series of ages stretching to infinity. And so when you look at Strong's definition for aeon, and then apply it here, it's not just that he has control over... It's not that he's the god of the world. It's, it's that he's the god of this age. Does that make sense? It gives a little more color, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 could and should be translated as age instead of war. So it's the god of this age. That could just as easily be translated the god of this age. And that rings a different bell, doesn't it? Yeah. It rings a different bell. It, it conjures up something a little different in the sense that Satan's in control at this time. At this time, um, where activities associated with this time in human history is what's in view. Not necessarily the whole world, if that makes sense, because as we know, God is the God of the universe, right? And He's in control. And the universe contains a little old thing called the world. And so we, ha we can't think that Satan has some exclusive hyper-control of the earth. God's in control, right? God's the God of the universe. Satan has just been granted a certain kind of control at this age, during this time on earth. So I just wanted to share that. It's just a little color. It might help you the way it helped me. Okay, back to where we were. Uh, up here on the board, obedience is a grace gift. By grace, God has given us commandments in the spiritual energy to obey them. Right? Uh, it's a blessing meant to sanctify us. The more we understand this, the more we rejoice, pray, give thanks that life is good. Okay? So we get to live in this ridiculous age that Satan is called the God of. If we just look around, if we just look around, we see that he controls the media. So many people who are idolized in this world. Global activities that might be enacted through large multinational organizations like, uh, say, the United Nations. He's working through all of these things in this age. So he's working in all of these places. Not necessarily, I'm not casting aspersions at every human being that, say, is a member of the United Nations. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but he's working somehow in all of these ways, not necessarily in every last person, 
but we certainly see his evil fingerprints strewn across this world during this age. Now, with that as our backdrop, it's incredible that we can hear a message like this one, read our Bibles in support of it, and truly know, in the middle of that as our backdrop, and truly know that life is good. And that scene where the most evil creature of all time is called the God of, we're able to have an attitude that life is good. We, in other words, we don't just get eternal life. We also get these gifts. These are all blessings. He teaches us. His Spirit mentors us along the way. He gives these kinds of spiritual gifts to help each one of us along the way so that we can get there, so that we can really, truly know that life is good. Because if we focus on uh, what the God of this world wants us to focus on, life isn't so good, is it? Life is, is, is uh, a tragedy. It's a train wreck. People are just vomiting everywhere. Garbage, blah, and their lives are just riddled with awfulness. People are uh, gnawing at each other and attacking each other, and they're miserable, and they blame everybody else. It's just a show. Right? An S show. <laughs> There's just so much ideological opposition to this attitude ex ex that can exist in us, that life is good. The Spirit took us down memory lane on Thursday to amplify the reality that we may not truly know something that is biblically factual. We might read it and we still don't know it. We may hear it from a pulpit and we still don't know it. We, kind of, we know it, but we don't truly know it. Think about it. We may even be able to recite Bible verses or perform acts of so-called goodness or even teach others the truth about Jesus Christ. So what? So what? So you, you can recite Bible verses, you can do, what, good deeds, supposedly. You might even be able to teach. So? Do you remember the demon-possessed girl with the python demon? Go to uh, Acts 16.16 16 if, you, if you don't. Acts 16.16. 16. You can do all these things. You can even teach truth. Imagine that. You think there's not some unholy pulpit right now with lots of people listening to some person that shouldn't even be standing behind a pulpit, that's not ordained by God, that is actually mixing truth with lies? Think that's not happening? Hmm. Acts 16, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, so she's possessed and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out. Look at what she says. So she's demon-possessed, right? Look at what she says. Try to find fault in what she says. These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Bingo! So she actually told an absolute truth. 
and she's demon-possessed. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. She was preaching the truth in a way. You see? Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So Paul saw right through it, didn't he? He did that little thing that the Bible says, test the spirits. Did that little thing. I don't care what you're saying right now. You might have people in your life like that. Say, oh, they're so in love with Jesus. Sure. I know they talk a big game. But are you sure? Are you sure? Paul wasn't fooled. I know a lot of people that call themselves Christians. I'm not convinced, not that it's my game, but I have to discern for myself, right? Who to, who to fellowship with, because what fellowship has, you know, righteousness with unrighteousness. Um, I don't want to fellowship with these people if I'm not convinced that they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the point. So I have to test the Spirit, just like you have to test the Spirit. Don't ever just listen to somebody and say, oh, okay. Do you believe in Jesus? I do. Oh, okay. Let's, let's turn the, the, the sewer pipe on. So imagine, imagine that scene. Seriously, imagine the scene. A demon-possessed girl basically preaching the truth. What makes you think that a person devoid of spiritual life can't speak the truth found in the Bible? Isn't that one of Satan's oldest tricks of all? Read Matthew 4. He actually quoted Holy Scripture. That's one of Satan's oldest tricks of all, to tempt us into trusting someone because they quote Holy Scripture or talk favorably about Jesus. Isn't that what some of you did even before you were saved but still came to, say, this church or maybe another church? Isn't that what you did? I've mentioned this several times in the past, but up until... Late 2015, there were several members of this congregation that had been here since 2010 who admitted they had just been saved in 2015. So they were members of this church for five years. And they got saved, what, five years after they started coming. These people blended right in with believers in this church. Even spoke highly of Jesus Christ. Don't ever be fooled by someone just because they look the part. Here's what the Bible has to say on this here on the board. 1 John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, prophets and even translate teachers, uh, have gone out into this world. Don't ever, be, don't ever be fooled, my friends. There are a lot of people out there that call themselves Christians, and they don't know Jesus Christ from Shinola. And Jesus, had, sadly, if they were to die today in that condition, Jesus would say, I never knew you. But, 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 I never knew you. I know you, you wanted to portray this thing that we were best buddies, but 
I saw your heart, and I don't, I never knew you like that. You were never mine. Just another translation for the sake of clarity in the message, same passage. My dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in this world. Really good advice. Don't believe everything you hear, my friends. Just because someone uses the right language or the right, the right vocabulary or any of that stuff um, doesn't mean they're even saved. Even if they're off doing wonderful things. Maybe they're some great so-called missionary. That doesn't mean jack. Honest to goodness, it doesn't mean anything. Here's the famous passage where Jesus lays this out before his disciples. Go to Matthew 7.21. Matthew 7.21. All we're really doing, again, is to establish that there's a difference. If we're going to talk about life is good and, and the attitude of it, um, you have to know what's in the Bible to arrive at that place in your own soul. Um, and there's a distinction between just knowing and then truly knowing. That's the point the Spirit's making. He's just driving it home. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Hmm. Again, up on the board, my dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in this world. The point the Spirit's reiterating here this morning is that a person can know biblical facts, but not truly know them to a degree where they are moved and motivated by them. Where they've been changed, where they abide in them, where they actually have this re real attitude that life is good. Uh, you can, all you have to do is look around, right? That's really all you have to do is look around. Some of you aren't even convinced, right? And I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but you're not, you know you're not convinced of it yet. And you might look to your left and right and be like, geez, I'm not sure they're even convinced of it yet. I'm not condemning anybody, but you have to learn the Word of God to become convinced. It, it never happens. You ready? It never happens in the absence of the word of truth being imparted to your soul directly, which is why I always tell you, don't take my convictions as gold. I don't want you to do it. I want you to have your own. So I keep telling you, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Read. Stop being an emotional basket case. Stop, being, stop leaning on other people. Stop you know, coming to church and saying, I'm just going to adopt his attitude. Uh, stop, stop leaning on uh, other commentaries and theologians who can never get along anyways. Have your own darn convictions. Stop being lazy. Read your Bible. Open it up. And literally read it. 
for the purpose of knowing, for the purpose of being sanctified, for the purpose of actually believing what you read. Not handpicking, not plucking, not just reading the passages that are your so-called favorites, you know, the ones that, you know, emotionally build you up. You don't want to read the ones that convict you, right? That kind of thing, that game. That's all the Spirit's saying. If you want to know Him, then you've got to know Him. You've got to get your nose in the Word of God. So a person can know biblical facts and not truly know them. Um, it's this category of a person that, that struggles perpetually with the life is good attitude. That might be you, I don't know. But that category of person is the one who continually struggles with this life is good attitude. It's this person who disobeys the immediate first order command to obey God's word, to learn it, to truly know it. That's the problem. I will never be able to deliver you. You will never be able to deliver you. Your spouse or your best friend will never be able to deliver you. This is it. You want to be delivered from your crappy little life, and I don't mean to be harsh, but you know what I'm saying. Your crappy attitude, let's put it, I shouldn't say a crappy little life, you know what I'm saying. Your crappy attitude about life, here's your answer. There it is. It's free. So back to commandments. Because we're talking about disobedience being the culprit. Commandments are our friends, not our enemies. They are what usher us back to Jesus. They are our GPS navigation system. They are our spiritual compass. Hence, appear on the board. Obedience is a grace gift. By grace, God has given us commandments in the spiritual energy to obey them. Obedience is a blessing meant to sanctify us. The more we understand this, the more we rejoice, pray, and give thanks that life is good. I gave you a wonderful example of what truly knowing looks like in the Bible. After class, uh, now this isn't the verse, it's the next verse, sorry. Ephesians 3.19, Amplified. And that you may come to know, do you see there's a gradual, there's a sanctification, you have to learn it, so don't be too hard on yourself if you're new to this, that you may come to know, practically, through personal experience even, the love of Christ, which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience, that you may be filled up throughout your, your being to all the fullness of God, so that you may have the richest experience of God's presence in your lives, completely filled and flooded with God himself. That's what truly knowing him looks like. That's the encouragement that comes from a pulpit that God has ordained. That's what's been coming from this pulpit for three messages now. Here's where we turn from theological type thinking to practical thinking. Why? Because some people file theology away on the shelf uh, as merely academic fodder, let's call it, for conversation. They take things that we've learned and, and they just file it away. And you say, all right, next time there's a Bible study, I'm going to pull this out and I'm going to look real smart. Or next time I have a discussion with so-and-so, I'm going to pull this off the shelf, dust it off, see what I know, 
Geez, a demon-possessed girl knew something. It, it, there's a reality to this, and it's not just being academically prepared. It's being sanctified by the things you learn. We don't learn the Word of God in order to be intellectual. We learn it to be sanctified. Let me repeat it. We don't learn the Word of God in order to be intellectual. We learn it to be sanctified. If that's not the end goal of yours, you are missing the point. And it is the very thing that the Spirit is pointing out why you don't have the life is good attitude. Because you come to a class like this and you say, that is so awesome. And you walk out to your car, you, you put a little bow on whatever you learn, you put it up on a shelf. And then you go back to your grotesque little life, the one that has nothing to do with Christ, and you say, gee, why do I not have the life is good attitude? Because you just hacked off the goodness. This is not the goodness. Is this a good thing? Absolutely. This message today, this hour, is not the goodness. The goodness happens in you out there. When you take all of this, there's no way you can take all of this. Never think about it again and get exactly what the Spirit wants to do to you, in you. No way. And that's what some people do. They come to class and say, this is the goodness in my life for today. One hour of a message from a ball guy. Woo! And then they, they, they walk out that door and it's literally like they cross a threshold. They say, that's it. I did my one hour of good stuff today. Wrong. That's why you're miserable. That is why. Right there. There should be no threshold. Right? There should, you should take everything that the Spirit gives you and spend real time with it. I mean real time with it. Turn off your stupid TV. Seriously. Put your stupid video games away. Or stop obsessing about your stupid looks. That's what makes you ugly. Stop obsessing about God, ungodly things. Do you understand? Stop it. Pat's like, yeah, that's why when you said I was beautiful, I was just kind of like, whoa, I'm not going to focus on this. <laughs> Put it away. That's the whole point. Spend some time with the grace gifts that you've been given. Don't make this the good part of your life. Make that the good part of your life. This is where you come to get trained. You're not going to be able to make full sense of it yet. It requires the spirit in prayer, in reflection, in self-examination, and then applying it to your life and seeing what happens. Seeing the proof of your faith come to life. That's the experience we just read about. Yeah, up here. That's that experience. Do you understand the fullness of this thing we call sanctification? It's not about being an intellectual. Trust me. If we intellectualize God's Word, we miss the blessings of being sanctified by it. If, that, if we do that, if that's the exercise that we go through, we miss out. It's not about how smart you can be in the Word of God. There are demons that will blow you out of the water. It's not about how smart you are. It's, the other st it's about how sanctified you are. And if the, the easiest way to lose the life is good attitude 
is to walk away from this. This is where you get all your perspective on life. Don't call up your stupid friend. Don't say, hey, let's get together. Let's pour back, let's put back a couple of glasses of wine. Let's have a conversation. You're already dissipated, moron. Nothing comes good from that. And yet some of you say, oh, those are when I have my most amazing conversations. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're both dissipated. It's impossible. God's trying to do something in you, and you're too busy drinking. Or whatever it is you're doing. Carrying on with an unbeliever. Or whatever. How does that happen? Because you come right here. You ready? Todd, stay seated. Familiarity. You become familiar. You become familiar. To become familiar is to lose one's perspective. It may just be the greatest disease of all, plaguing believers in Christ. When we become familiar with the word, we lose. That's it. You want to know the truth? That's it. We lose our life is good attitude. And just a, I call it a maturity principle. I don't care what you call it. But this is the same thing as disobedience. To become familiar is tantamount to disobedience. Because you're disobeying God. Essentially. Here's our sister principle on the topic of familiarity. Don't just say life is good because of this or that thing exists in your life. Say it because you know that every facet of it is truly good. Because it's been designed by God to be good. They say, oh, you don't know my life. Oh, I just, you know, I, you don't know. I was made fun of. I was, you know, I was fat when I was a kid. And the scar tissue's there. I just can't be fat again, so I'm, I'm obsessed with being scrawny. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say something's, gone, something's awry there. Do I understand how the scar tissue can exist? Yeah, I'm not judging anybody. But what I'm saying is the deliverance is not in dwelling on that garbage. The deliverance is in getting and reading your Bible and learning that God loves you and created you just the way you are. Your set point might be different. You know anything about physiology? Your set point might be different. You might be a, a toothpick, right? And you, or you might be a little chubby. Whatever. Who gives a crap? Honestly, who cares? What are you fo What's wrong with that picture? What are you focused on? <laughs> your little idol, you, the one in the mirror, or your bank account, or your... Your, your, your reputation or your business and all this stuff. What are you worried about? God designed you. God didn't make a mistake with you. But so many of us act just like he did. Why? Because we're familiar with this. That's why. Because if you read this, all that stuff goes, oh, I forgot. That's, those are lies. Oh, I forgot. That stuff doesn't matter. Oh, I forgot. That's all garbage from the kingdom of darkness to keep me in bondage. Oh, I forgot. How are you forgetting so much? Oh, I don't open up my Bible. That's the big forget. I don't read my Bible even for content. I just read it because, I don't know, I feel guilty that I'm not. That's what the Spirit's saying. That road leads away from life is good. Because as we've established very clearly at this point, Life is good. That is a fact. So the Spirit gave us a strategy even. See, I love the Spirit. He's so tenacious, right? He gives us so many angles. 
to come at the rose bush, right? There's this beautiful thing that life is good. And this is what he's doing. He's walking us around. And he's saying, oh, you still don't believe me? Well, for you theological people, here. You still don't believe me? Okay, for those of you who don't get it because of this, I'll give you this angle. Okay, he just keeps doing this. And he gave you another strategy. And another one, and another one. One wonderful strategy to regain our perspective is up here on the board. This is the one I, was, I alluded to earlier, right? DJ said after Thursday's class or Sunday's class, whenever this came up, was it Thursday? Thursday's class, he goes, I swear to you, I'm going to read that every day for the rest of my life. And I'm going to think about Jesus Christ every time. Now, we all know he's a liar because he's not going to read it every day. He might even have a Bible that has the amplified version. So DJ, you're just a liar, man. I'm sorry. But thank you for all the good work you do back there. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. In his heart, he, right, DJ? In your heart, you're like, oh, I just, you don't have to read. He probably read it so many times, probably memorized. So there you go. You read it in your head. But this is the point, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, or finally, believers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and worthy of respect, whatever is right and confirmed by God's word. Um, you don't read the word. You don't know if it's confirmed by it, just saying. Okay, confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely and brings peace, whatever is admirable and of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think continually on these things. Center your mind on them and implant them in your heart. And as I said on Thursday, if you look at what Paul wrote, we can actually say that's Jesus. That right there is, that's like saying focus on him. Because isn't he all those things? Yep. Focus on Jesus. What we don't want to do when we read the likes of a passage like the one on the board is apply a worldly lens to it. We don't want to apply a worldly lens to it. Let me give you some guidance up here on the board. Applying the proper lens. We should never think about Jesus Christ through an earthly lens if we apply an earthly lens to him, it follows that we will apply an earthly scale of values to the things of God. In other words, if we look at, say, a passage like Philippians 4.8 with an earthly lens, we start saying, okay, wait a minute. Whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is of good repute, whatever is lovely, mm -hmm. concentrate for a moment. To obtain this life is good attitude that's what we're trying to establish here right we want to get there we want to clear out any of the lies or any of the distractions that might get in our way any of the speed bumps that get in our way to getting there um, to obtain this life is good attitude we must be present with god on his terms present with god on his terms let's say it again Present with God on His terms, not by the flesh's terms. In other words, the world's terms or the world's scale of values. That is very important. I think that is one of the gravest errors a lot of Christians make. They say, oh, I'm so blessed. Why? How come you're so blessed? Because I got all this stuff. I'm so blessed. Why? Because of, pick the transaction. I'm so blessed because of this thing happened in my life. You mean you weren't blessed before it happened? 
One practical example that the Spirit brought up is our street address. We're Americans. We're obsessed, right, with the American dream, which is a farce. I actually wrote a blog on that. It's a, it's a trap. But nonetheless, he brought it up. One practical example of this is our street address. When we read the words, whatever is admirable and of good repute, in Philippians 4.8, should we be thinking about how lovely our home is? I mean, you'd think that we would because every time someone, even in this church, goes to, say, a, a bazillionaire's house, I have to hear about it. I'm saying to myself, why am I hearing about it? They're not even talking to me. Why am I hearing about so-and-so's million-dollar home? Why, do, why would I want to hear that in my church? Why does that come? Why does that even an op? That person you're talking about isn't even a believer. Why are we talking about this? Why is this a subject in this chapel? You know what I'm saying? I'm convinced of that. If anyone, for the most part, not everyone, but for the most part, if the average person, even in this lovely congregation, went to Bill Gates' house, who's a known atheist, and came back, guess who would hear about it? For like months? Us. Everybody else. What is our problem? What is so impressive with those things? Oof. That's not admirable. It's not even of good repute. What makes it good repute? So should we be thinking about how lovely things like that, I say our home is? Or should we be thinking about Christ? That's the language. Whatever is admirable and of good repute. But see, if you have an earthly lens, what do you look at? What do you see when you read Holy Scripture even? What's the perversion? What's the filter? See, it goes through that ungodly filter, and it comes out as, oh, my beautiful home. It comes out as, oh, my beautiful car. Oh, my beautiful hair. Oh, my beautiful fingernails. Oh, my beautiful mustache. Is this such a thing? Let me see. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right? You know what I'm saying, right? It, it, gets, it gets translated. God intends this. It goes through a filter, and it comes out this way. And it's twisted. I would argue just about every, every Christian I've ever met, does, including myself, does that same thing. Does that very thing. It gets twisted. This is the intention in the, Holy, in the Bible. It goes through a filter. And it gets perverted. It gets twisted. Right? We're supposed to see Jesus Christ pure. Right? Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what we're supposed to see. Now, we see, we, <laughs> we see a house. And because this thing has some value, because the perversion that's here has some value, then we, do, we talk about some billionaire's house on plane. Right? That should never be the case. Never. Never. And that's, that's the perversion, you see? And he's saying, take that thing out. Make sure that when you read Holy Scripture, make sure that that filter, that human viewpoint, that earthly lens is ripped out. Because then you'll see what I intend for you to see. That's what takes you to a life as good attitude. Because you realize all those temporal things mean nothing. They really don't. They literally mean zilch. 
Case in point. Here's how Jesus described his living conditions. The Living Bible, Luke 9.58. But Jesus replied, remember, I don't even own a place to lay my head. Foxes have dens to live in, the birds have nests. But I, the Messiah. <laughs> Is there a greater title? Nope. The Messiah have no earthly home at all. I'm going to guess that since the very manifestation of life is good, that's Jesus. He's the manifestation of it. I'm going to guess that since the very manifestation of life is good, didn't even own a home. These two things cannot and should never be tied to each other. Life is good, owning a home. They don't, they don't, they should never be causal for each other. Does it make sense? They're never that way. I'd be willing to bet. Now, you can take offense with me. It's okay. But I have pretty good discernment. I'd be willing to bet that until some of you actually purchased a home, you would have struggled with seeing Philippians 4.8 through the lens that results in blessings. Even we believers are famous for talking a big game. But when it comes right down to it, the old adage, it's a secular adage even, holds true up here on the board. Ooh, is that way up there? Why is that way up there? I don't know. Must, God must really want you to see it. You don't really know someone until you say no to them. That was a very hard lesson I learned in the, in, uh, the ministry. You uh, A lot of good-intentioned people that talk the right way. You say no to them. You deny them something that they want. Oh, my goodness. You would think you punched them in the face. How dare you say no to me? And then they'll attack you. They'll malign you. They'll attack your character. They'll do all kinds of crazy stuff. Why? Because you denied them something that they wanted. They thought they should have it. You said no. Next thing you know, you're the worst turd in human history. And they'll let you know and everybody else around you. That's the human flesh. But it's funny because until you say no to someone, everybody, way, Jesus, I love Jesus. I'm so happy. Right? They throw them bouquets. They come in with a little basket. You say, don't do that. You're making a mess. <gasps> Figuratively speaking. You don't really know someone until you say no to them. You know what, though? Here's the thing. Maybe it's God who says no to you. Maybe a guy like me in a certain circumstance is ordained by God to be the vehicle, the vessel that says no on his behalf. Maybe, just maybe. So maybe it's God who says no to you. What will you do then? Curse him? That's what Satan proposed Job would do, if you recall. Satan's whole accusation was that Job was a farce. You know, like most humans are. Even believers in many ways. That was Satan's whole accusation. This guy's... Yeah, you, you proffer him up as blameless and upright because... 
look at him. He's blessed. I mean, he's got kids. He's got businesses. You, you know. But as the story goes, we know that Satan was wrong. Go to Job 1.1. 1, 1. Job 1, verse 1. You don't really know someone until you say no to them. Which is really, if you were to generalize that, it means if you oppose their will, okay? Their will is this. You say no. That's what's... So it really opens it up. Job 1.1 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job... And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Okay, so that's established. Look at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Those are angels, right? And Satan also came among them, the great accuser. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord and said, from, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Look at the accusation, verse 11. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys uh, feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck, them, uh, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And alone, I, I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking. This sounds like the worst day in history, right? It's unbelievable. Think about having this day. Some of you are like, oh my God, I can't believe it. This happened and this happened this happened. What? You had a hangnail, you, you spilled your cocoa, and what? Your dog peed on the floor? Imagine being Job. And you're cursing God. Curse you, God! Some of you are like, I never say that. You do. You do. In your heart, you do. You can disagree, but I think God would disagree with you, so there. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your son, now this is heartbreaking. This is awful. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Look at that. What was his response? He worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall, shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. How many of you would react like that? That's the question. Verse two, uh, chapter 2, 1. Again, there was, a, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast with his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Remember, God protected Job the first time. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Right? And he took, <laughs> and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This guy is having the worst day, week, whatever, ever. Ever. Then his wife came to him. Oh, hey, honey. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She wasn't even going through everything he was going through, and she failed way before that, obviously. Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You don't really know someone until you say no to them. This no, focus please, this no might represent you don't get what you want. That might be the no. Let me say it again. God might say to you in so many words, you're not going to get what you want. Yeah, I hear you. Every night you're praying to me. You're not going to get what you want. No. And it doesn't always have to be something fresh. It could be, can you take this thing away? Think of like Paul with a thorn. It could be one or the other. My will as a human, give me this thing or take this horrible thing away. God says, no. Thinking of Joshua's note, right? No. And since God ordains all things in this world, it really is God's voice you are hearing. In the case of Job, I think it's fair to say that he wanted to keep his children and his belongings, right? But God said no when he allowed Satan to take these things from Job. In Job's case, he passed the test. Ask yourselves, would you, given the circumstances, would you? Just as a side note, to be honest, most of us suffer as a result of our own poor decision-making, unlike Job, who was blameless and upright. And yet, we still respond much worse than Job did. We moan and groan to God about stuff. And he's like, you're just reaping what you sow. I, I, I told you that would happen. I told you I'm, I'm not mocked. I don't tell you these things so that you can break what I've set forth as doctrine. Uh, you're nowhere near Job. 
You're reaping what you've sown. You're miserable because of what you've sown in your own life. Job was, Job was like blameless. He didn't deserve any of this. And yet he probably, in all fairness, did better in that situation than most of us do with our self-inflicted situations. In other words, there's a huge chasm here. All right? um, I hope you see the point of all this. The point is that when we read, say, the likes of Philippians 4.8, for example, whatever is admirable and of good repute. Uh, we ought to remember that these things, uh, the Word uh, is directing our attention with these things, these things, admirable, good repute. The, the, the Word is directing our attention to things that aren't temporal or earthly things, like a street address. I mean, look at Job. Job's stuff got blown up. He ends up sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping himself. With, from sores, um, and yet he didn't curse God the way Satan said he would. Was he in pain? He lost his whole family, right? I mean, of course he was in pain, but blessed, the Lord gave, the Lord gave, took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the life is good attitude. Whatever you want, Lord, that's the life is good attitude. If he says no, it's for your own good reasons. It's for, you don't just stop. Here's what freedom from all that kind of bondage looks like up here on the board. Again, applying the proper lens. We should never think about Jesus Christ through an earthly lens. If we apply an earthly lens to him, it follows that we will apply an earthly scale of values to the things of God. What was more important to Job? All the stuff that he lost or staying right with God? What was more important in that moment to his wife? One had an earthly lens, the wife. One had a godly lens. You sound like one of those foolish people that have earthly lenses right now. You sound like one of those people that put a lot of eggs in that basket. Like for our stuff, I'm sore, I'm broken too. I loved my children, I loved our businesses, what have you. But this is God's game, not ours. I'm going to stay over here. Maybe you should rethink this, sweetie. Right? And so we have, and then, of course, his friends came in. Oh, my goodness, they were the worst. Right? Oh, you definitely deserve it. You did something. Just tell us. And they put a mic in his face. What'd you do? What'd you do? I didn't do anything, Switch. What'd you do? You know it's true. That's an earthly lens. Never do that. If we accept this advice from God the Holy Spirit this day, we are one step closer to abiding in a life is good attitude. The same one Jesus abided in his whole life. Remember this principle? I'm getting ready to close. Life is good attitude. It's transcendent, not transactional. What did, what did we just see with Job? He transcended all circumstances. He literally raised above the circumstances. He didn't say, like, if we kept on reading, like with uh, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, those guys, we, he didn't do what they would have done, which is make it transactional. Oh, because this, then this. Because this, then this. No, 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 no. We're supposed to transcend if you want to maintain a life is good attitude, you can't be transactional because some of you are going to drive out of this parking lot and someone's going to go, tweet, tweet. 
right? You're going to get a birdie, right? And you're going to say, right? And, and what's the problem? You're transactional. Your thinking is earthly. You're supposed to pray for that person. You're supposed to be like, wow, they're miserable. I'll have to pray for them later once I get off the road. You see the difference? One, you transcend, you're immediately delivered. You're like, you kind of say, I'm glad I'm not miserable like that. Right? That's the difference. If you become transactional, you're looking for reasons to either say life is good or say life is not good. That's all you do all day is you become this transactional little machine. Oh, life is good. Oh, life is not so good. Oh, life is good. This person's aggravating me. Life's not so good. This is, life is, no. Whoop. Life is good. God says so. Life is good. Say it. Thank you. Thank you. Life is good. Um, yeah, we've got time. Anybody dying? Any big coffees out there? You guys hold on. Don, I don't know how you do it, but Brenda, you're quite the. Uh, you doing all right? Can you make it? All right. It's like up to her shoulder, and it's empty. I really do. My prayer is that you spend some real time. Um, on or with this point on the board. One more bit of perspective. This is why I held you. Go to John 4.31, real quick. John 4.31. John 4.31. Just a little more perspective. Food for thought. Most of you, or some of you have tomorrow off. This gives you extra time. Right? Maybe that's what the Spirit's saying. You get a little time off tomorrow? Well, here's a little extra scripture. John 4.31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Where is their head? They're unearthly things. Jesus is transcendental, right? Transcendent. What's the right way? Transcendent or transcendental? Anybody? Does anybody care? Everybody's like, I don't even care. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, this is one of my, if there is a favorite thing, I love this so much, I can't even put it into words. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Okay, is he eating anything? No. Is it earthly stuff he's talking about? No. He's saying, my food, my sustenance, the stuff that energizes me, what gets me going is to do, and I love the activity part, we're not supposed to be couch potatoes, academic morons in ivory towers. We're actually supposed to be doing, right? Like was James 1.22, don't be hearers, but be doers. That, you know what I'm saying? That delude themselves. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We can learn so much from this. You want a life is good attitude? Do the will of God. What's that word we call it? It starts with an O. Obey. Oh, whoa, imagine that. Obey. You want a life is good attitude? You obey. That's it. I love it. It's so amazing. It's so simple. Do you think you'll ever find John 434 on the gates that lead to a college campus? This is a perfect place to stop uh, this message because I've given you 
two opposing perspectives to think about. The world's versus Jesus. Earthly versus heavenly. Transactional, transcendent. I want you to seek to understand the connection in your soul between what you call blessings and the status of your life as good attitude. This is work. I'm telling you, I'm not teaching this right now. I'm just throwing it at you. I want you to understand the connection in your soul between what you call blessings and the status of your life as good attitude. In other words, consider whether your abiding definition for blessings is from the Word of God or from the world. And then, with that in mind, think about whether or not your life is good attitude needs improvement. And while you're doing that, find the linkage between the two things and see if one is the cause for the other. What do you say? What is your definition for blessings? Has it been twisted? What's your definition for blessings? And then compare that to the status of your life as good attitude. Just a little hint, in case you didn't get it. Is it possible that what you choose to call blessings might actually be transactional instead of transcendent? Is it possible that what you choose to call blessings might actually be transactional instead of transcendent? So keep that point in mind. This life is good attitude. It's transcendent, not transactional. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this time and this space and this peace and this quiet and this, oh, this incredible Word of God, this truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you so much for your patience, your mercy, your grace, and your love. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and the privacy of our own souls, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.